0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am on the line with Dave Ferrucci. Dave is the founder, CEO, and chief scientist at Elemental Cognition. Dave, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Hi, how are you? It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great to have you on the show. Uh, So in some circles, you are perhaps best known as having built and led the IBM Watson team. Uh, And I'm curious, how did you arrive at that point in your career?
1: Well, I I was always interested in in artificial intelligence. I mean, I have been since um, actually since uh, high school, early college, it's been my fascination. I started programming, I guess, in uh, in high school, and um, right from the very beginning. I mean, after I, I think I wrote my first program was like in in BASIC. I think it was on a PDP eleven. I can't remember exactly, but it was really early <laughs> And uh, and um, you know, I think what blew me out of the water right away was, um, wow, if I can, if I can just describe my thought process i can get a computer to do work for me and that was just very exhilarating and and my mind directly went to this notion i don't i don't even think i i personally had a word for it at the time um, i learned later it was called artificial intelligence but this notion that if i can describe how i solve problems I, if i can describe how i think And I could put it in this language that the computer, um, executes for me. I can get the computer to do all the hard work and allow me to kind of be creative. And, um, I hated doing repetitive tasks. So this was just mind blowing to me. And, um, I was on the path to become a medical doctor. My parents wanted me to be a medical doctor. That was like the thing to do in my neighborhood. Um, if you were smart enough, I guess. And, um, But I just got this bug. And so by the time I was in college, I was doing more and more and more programming, programming everything I could possibly get my hands on. And then eventually, uh, switched to, um, wanting to go to grad, instead of going to medical school, to wanting to go to graduate school in computer science. I eventually got my, my PhD and got a chance to work at, um, IBM research, uh, on an, on an AI, on an AI project and um interestingly enough this was back in the um and i think it was the late mid 80s and uh artificial intelligence at the time became a bad word and there was an ai winter and uh, it was all about you know the customers worrying that ai was going to take jobs can you imagine um and we here we are in the same spot some years later but uh, <laughs> it's fascinating and they um and they went around canceling ai projects and uh and my manager at the time said, you know, Dave, you, you've got to learn how to do, you could become a specialist in like a domain area and, and you don't want to be a technologist, right? And we're not going to be doing AI any, anymore. And I quit. <laughs> mm. I was like, because this is not, that's clearly what I want to do. This is actually between my master's, and my PhD. And so I went back and I finished my PhD. I actually ended up returning to IBM and, um, and you know, working on uh, a number of different projects all related to AI, to text analytics, um, uh, speech, image analytics, building, software and infrastructure. I eventually got into open domain question answering, had built a team. We competed in a lot of um, government sponsored um, competitions in the open domain question answering track. So I got to a point um, where I was doing all the things I love to do, software, software architecture, software engineering, all around solving, um, a, you know, AI type problems. And so I had built a team. So by about 2006, I had built a team of about 25 people, all, you know, specialists and a combination of software engineering and, and, and different aspects of AI, including, uh, natural language processing, machine learning, um, knowledge representation and reasoning. And, um, And this idea of doing this uh, Jeopardy challenge came up. And um, actually, it came up two years before that. But um, the executive who who wanted to do it kept on being turned down by the vast majority of um, scientists and researchers he he, uh, would go to to say, hey, can we get this done? And they said, no, it's impossible. You can't do it. It's too hard. And um, I was interested in it. When it came around in 2000, uh, 2004 and 2005, but very busy with another project, and then at the end of 2006, I was coming off of the project, uh, and I um, and I said, you know, I think this is possible, and I think we we not only not only should we do it, we sort of have an obligation to do it. We've been working in open domain factoid question answering for some time. Uh, my team had participated in the, tr- in the track uh, question answering track for a number of years. It was um, I, I was doing a number of different things. It was uh, maybe the team was about seven or so people dedicated to that. And um, and I think we, we have to take this on. And if we had a chance of um, making the appropriate investment, we should do it. And even if it if it looks hard. We have to understand why it's hard. I mean, even if I fail, I'll be able to kind of tell the community, "Hey, look, we made a concerted effort at this. Here's how we did it. Here's what was hard about it. Here's what worked. Here's what didn't work." So it was a great opportunity to do real research and to get that, you know, funded, you know, um, by IBM at the right levels because they were excited about, you know, getting the the Jeopardy challenge, the thing on, on television. And so um, I did a I did a, a feasibility study. We did a little bit, uh, we played around with some ideas and I proposed it, that we can do it. Uh, and, um, and they bought in and said, okay, you know, you're the guy. Uh, we're gonna invest in this and, and you're gonna take on this challenge. And so I built up the team over the, that, that was the end of 2006. So 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, um, completely focused on that, building up the, building up and rounding out the team and um, basically, going from scratch and building building Watson that ultimately won on Jeopardy, and uh, I guess we played it in 2011. So uh, that's kind of the story from from
0: uh, from my passion all the way th- right through right through the Watson stuff. And after Watson, did you jump right into Elemental Cognition, or uh, so were there w- some stopping points along the way?
1: Yeah, so Watson was interesting because um, it was a huge – it was a tremendous success for us. It was um, – trem- the technical team was just so – had worked so hard and uh, was so proud. We went into the final contest with about a 70, 75 – between 70, and 75, a 73% chance of winning based on all the stats that we did, all the simulations that we did. Um, we had worked our way up from when we started, there was about a, you know, we were getting th- we had 0% chance of winning, you know, the, the system out of the box when we started was getting like 13%, uh, right. Um, so it was a huge, um, accomplishment and it was in the middle of both sort of a combination of science, um, obviously, and we had the scientific results business, you know, the business and the marketing at IBM it was a big project for them and entertainment because we had to work with the jeopardy production folks and the television folks and pulled us all together so having accomplished that um, no one knew where it was going it it was such a focus on those things and then no one knew where it was going and um, interestingly and i think this relates to kind of the perceptions of artificial intelligence i think interestingly and, and if you've saw if you watch the games but we presented this thing we called the answer panel where it showed the top three answers and the chances we thought uh, the probability of the, that those answers being right. And I think that the putting that up on the television screen got people to to imagine that the machine was doing more than looking this stuff up in, in a table, which of which of course it was. Mm-hmm. But I think when 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 people just watch a computer give an answer, you know, the general thing is, well, computers just know everything; they just look it up and they know everything. But when they when they see this notion of, wait a second, it must be doing more than that because it's coming up with a probability. So it must be kind of calculating why an answer might be right or why an answer might be wrong. And in fact, we were doing something uh, certainly along those lines, building a, a confidence model for for that based on hundreds of hundreds of features and our and our underlying machine learning algorithms. And um and so this really captured the imagination, I think, of the consumer, of the customer. And before you knew it, uh, IBM had a lot of people coming and saying, "Hey, we want this thing. Like, how do we get this thing?" And um, and at that point, uh, the 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 project took on a very different, uh, very different, uh, you know, tone. Very different nature it was all about how do we commercialize this? How do we bring AI and this technology to to customers? And I personally wanted to kind of take a step back, and and I look looking you know at how Watson worked and what my dreams were for for artificial intelligence in general. It's like you know we're not really there yet. While there's a lot of technology here that could be exploited and leveraged in a variety of different applications, um, we're not at this point where the machine really understands language, and um, and that's where I wanted to be. I wanted to be where I can fluently converse with the computer just like you can on star Trek and I can get it to understand what I'm saying. I can get it to deliver and summarize and read stuff, summarize information for me. I can get it to help me problem solve, you know, become like a thought partner, um, th- through the fluency of language, think the way I do only better, but in a way that I can understand it. Uh, it can be explained to me. I can tell it what it, no- what I know. It can tell me what it knows. Um, and this was the dream and we were far from, we were far from that. And I really wanted to step back and, and do that, do that kind of thing. So I, so I, um, and IBM was on a very different road at that point because of the, uh, consumer interest, the customer interest. So, uh, to be precise, not necessarily the consumer, but, you know, business interest and stuff like that. So I really wanted to take that step back. Um, I got a chance. I, I was, you know, um, for a variety of reasons, we won't go into, I, um, I uh, yeah some of my choices at the time were, were limited, um, and I got really interested in this company not far from where I lived called Bridgewater, and I started working for Bridgewater. And part of the reason I was interested in Bridgewater also relates to my philosophy around AI, which is that Bridgewater is a hedge fund that was approaching markets in what they called a fundamental and systematic way, meaning that any kind of prediction they were going to make, they were going to make sure they had an explicable model for that prediction. So this was the kind of AI I was interested in. And of course, you know, if you're in the market, you're awash in data. So it is about data and it's about data science, but it's not about um, sort of blind past predicts the future. It's really about building theoretical models and being able to explain yourself. So that was very aligned with my interest, a completely different domain, um, but nonetheless, uh, not expressly about language, but the same sort of approach toward AI. And I got involved with, with them and uh, did, did some work for them, still doing some work for them. But during the course of that got them really interested in, in sort of my vision for language understanding and, and that ultimately the future of AI has to land in a place, and this is where we both really agreed, that the future of AI has to land in a place that we build machines that are understandable, that are explicable, their logic can be probed and can be challenged uh, and, and can be explained. So, um, so I got, they gave me the opportunity to start my own company called Elemental Cognition. And that was in 2015, um, that we, that I started, that I started that. And that's been our mission is to focus on uh, language understanding, uh, with the, uh, to build a learning machine, um, that can learn in a way that ultimately interprets language uh, builds on um, causal models based on its interpretation, uh, can speak to people, acquire knowledge, reason about that knowledge, answer questions, and provide explanations. I think this is the holy grail for language AI. And uh, and that's the mission for uh, el- uh, for elemental cognition.
0: Awesome. I hadn't realized the, uh, the Bridgewater connection. Bridgewater, of course, being uh, perhaps popularized more recently with uh, with Ray Dalio's book um
1: yes principles. yeah so Ray Ray wrote the book on principles and uh, and uh, is uh, popularizing that um, of course um, it's the biggest hedge fund in the world mm-hmm. and um, and is sort of known for for this approach toward markets which is again fundamental and systematic where they they're built they of course leverage the computer but they build explicable explicable systems. And that's kind of the link between between Order and me, as we have a very similar philosophy about AI.
0: Yeah, one of the things that occurred to me as you were talking about the Watson experience and the way that you presented the results via this panel uh, was that it was in some ways uh, kind of an early view at AI explainability, right? We're not just going to show this one result and say it's the answer. We're going to show these results and explicitly acknowledge that, you know, there are probabilities involved. Well,
1: that's, that's right. And there's a, there's a great story about that. Um, the, uh, I thought that was so important to do because we had, you know, we had taped many games, we did many practice games and we would tape them and show them to different, um, you know, audiences. And at the time, I think my younger daughter was seven or eight. And and we showed her one of these tapes of Watson playing against um, former Jeopardy players. And um, Watson, you know, didn't know an answer, and decided not to answer. We didn't have that answer panel up that showed its top three choices. And uh, when the computer didn't answer, she 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 turned around and said, you know, did a crash. Hmm. And I thought that was fascinating that, you know, at that young age, you know, she, she already had this notion that. A computer should answer. If it didn't answer, it's down. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Something's wrong. And I thought, no, I said, you know, the, you know, Watson decided not to answer because it wasn't sure. And, and that's so completely different. And so, um, so then I, you know, I just became convinced and I, I, of course, was watching the game too. And I thought, you know, this is, it's just not nearly as interesting and ex- and as exciting, because, you know, you when you're watching a human, you, you think the humans like you and you're projecting what you would be doing, answering a question. And you'd be like wrestling with whether you, you knew the answer or not and whether or not you wanted to buzz in. But, you know, you don't have that same model for what a computer does, interestingly. And um, and so um, so it was so I just not as interesting. So I said, we really have to get that answer panel up on on the screen. And um and at first, Jeopardy didn't want to do it. And uh, and eventually, long story short, we convinced Alex Trebek by showing hi- showing him a couple of games with their answer panel up, and then and he got so fascinated. But he said, you know, this isn't really Jeopardy because your your attention is distracted. It, that answer panel is so fascinating, it completely takes you away from the normal experience of what a Jeopardy game is about. And so we. Um so he then showed him a few uh, showed him a few games with without the answer panel, and he was like, "Wait a second, like this is boring." <laughs> <laughs> and so, right? And so he sort and it was so clearly you know worse. And he was like, "We got to get that up there," and I think that really changed the perception of AI. And you're absolutely right; it is the beginnings of why. And it's not enough because I think when machines are 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 not doing fact-wide question answering, but they're making predictions, um, whether they're in, uh, law, law, um, you know, um, policymaking or law or, 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 um, you know, healthcare or, or even finance anywhere where, you know, wow, this is going to affect your life in a serious way. Um, you, it's really a, a, um. It's a collaboration. I mean, I think the best way, it's not just an answer. It's really a back and forth collaboration. It's a dialogue that you have to go through Uh, because as you hear the answers, you wanna know, why does that answer make sense? Am I missing something? Um, do I now that I hear you tell me that answer, maybe there are risks that I just didn't imagine or values that I weren't considering or weighing properly. Now that I see the answer and the reasons why that answer may be right or wrong. Um, so it, it and, and, you, and you can experience that just through the thought experiment. Just think of how you um, interact with any human expert, whether you're consulting with the um with you're consulting with a lawyer, or you're working with a teacher who's trying to help you understand something.
0: Uh, see, um, I, I was going to say that sounds like my conversations with my wife about what we're going to have for dinner. There's there that go. much back and forth.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there you go, right? Even when it's not that important, right? You know, <laughs> you know, you think you have the answer, but um, or you know, or, or a doctor or a lawyer, you know, it really is. You know, you think it's simple, but it's not so simple when it's when it's important enough. And I think at that point, you're really expecting the expert to start to bring you into the decision-making process to give you the explanations that you need to kind of have that back and forth. Can you imagine, you know, making an important decision and and asking an advisor and the advisor says, well, I think you should take this uh, treatment or you you should invest your money here, whatever it is. And then you said, well, why do you think that? And the person just says, well, trust me. Right. It's my intuition.
0: Well, this idea of it uh, being not so simple is is one that uh, reminds me of something you you said when we were speaking before uh, the interview started. And that is that there's this big question for you around A.I. And that is, are we really being honest about how difficult the problem is? Can you elaborate a little bit on that and what that you know, what that statement, what that question means for you?
1: Yeah. So, um, I think there's, I think what's going on in, you know, in the industry right now is we have a set of techniques that are good at a particular approach. Um, so we have this deep learning stuff, which by the way, I, I love, and I use any chance I get, but I'm also honest about what it's capable of and not capable of so far, and we have this technique and we build data sets and challenge problems that are that are, you know, subject to that technique, subject in one form or another are susceptible, vulnerable to that technique working. Um, and and I don't think they're ambitious enough. I think that understanding is actually a very hard problem. And I think if we step back and really think about how hard it is, independently of how a computer would work. And we say, what does it mean to understand stuff? To understand language, we just have to think about how much, how much energy and thought humans put into understanding each other. This is not a simple thing. We we we're, we're sort of language machines. We're great at it and terrible at it at the same time. <laughs> Right, we're great. We're we're great at generating all kinds of language. We can write prolifically. We can talk prolifically. We can fill up you know twenty four seven sh- news shows. Um, do we reach an understanding? Like if you sit down, everybody sort of nods. But what's your level of understanding? Even reading, um, wh- whether you know whether it's a, an article or a book or whatever, people can debate endlessly for what's really meant, what you're really getting out of it, what, what, is, what, communi- what information is actually communicating, and how precisely, and how confidently, and why are we having different opinions about what's going on. In science, of course, we invented formal languages for this kind of stuff. Um, so in engineering, we don't rely on that. We rely on engineering specification diagrams and formal semantics and things like that. Um, and even there, uh, there are challenges. In mathematics, we do mathematical proofs. And yet humans don't want to communicate that way clearly, but there has to be some in between. There has to be a recognition that understanding is actually pretty hard. Uh, Humans invest an enormous amount of energy, whether it be in teaching or journalism or uh, writing or film, we invest enormous amount of energy communicating and trying to understand each other. We struggle mightily with it. So so do we expect, you know, computers to take a, a large corpora digest them statistically and come out and do this right there's just a lot more going on here and I think we have to we have to kind of open our eyes to what else is going on um, for you and I to get comfortable understanding each other we probably have to spend a lot of time sort of synchronizing what our background knowledge is um, what our what how we how we communicate about different things how we use particular words phrases, metaphors, If I know you're an expert at something, um, and if I know that too, I can use that as a foundation for doing metaphors. Um, So there's just a lot to do. And I think when we imagine elemental cognition, we imagine the computer kind of engaging with the human continuously. In other words, becoming this thought partner that evolves within a community of humans talking about a thing and reading about a thing and learning how to align its internal models and, and how to acquire the right background knowledge to speak and build understanding. And we start like with the kid, the, you know, the kid in, in first grade, reading to try to understand stuff and imagine collaborating with the teacher, like, I don't know what this means, I don't know what that means, what, what, um, you know, what, why would you know, why would you do that and if you're talking about learning about plants and how they grow with light and water as the simplest sort of stuff. Um, What do you have to know to understand that and to put that in the right framework in your head so you can make uh, useful predictions about what you've learned? It's a complex process that involves learning the language, learning how to map it onto models, learning how to reason over those models, learning uh, what background knowledge applies and what doesn't apply, learning what the, the metaphors, the analogies, the phrases, the words, the word senses mean in that context. And it always involves the kind of the going, the back and forth, um, doing the back and forth to kind of get your
0: your bearings in your context. Mm-hmm. So it's
1: just a challenging, it's just a challenging problem.
0: So one of the points you made is that we're not setting our aspirations high enough. And it, earlier in this conversation, you talked about the the AI winter. Like, is there a relationship between, you know, where we set our aspirations and the kind of expectations that were set last time with the AI winter and what we need to do to, to manage them? Like, Or rather, is there a risk in setting our aspirations too broadly that we're painting the pic- a picture beyond what the technology is capable of and we kind of set ourselves up for another deflation of those expectations?
1: Yeah. So my, my, it's a good question. I mean, my, my, um, my perspective on that is a little bit twofold. I mean, I think we're not in the danger that we once were in terms of suffering another, uh, uh sort of full blown AI winter. And the reason is because I think that there's so many, there's so many, so much low hanging fruit for deep learning, um, to continue to provide value. Um, and I think what deep learning has done for voice recognition, um, image image recognition, um, how has it actually helped advance at least superficial, uh, NLP, uh, at least superficial NLP? Um, I think these these are uh, for control systems uh, as as well. I think uh, that this is enormous, and will continue to deliver for some time. And I think we'll continue to deliver value and transformation, actually, for some time. The other prong of my answer, though, is I think that in some circles there are these expectations for this understanding thing. I think that's a harder problem. And I don't think we're yet making the right advancement. I think that problem is I think that problem is tractable, but I don't think yet we're making the right. Um, investments. I mean, the elemental cognition, one of, one of my goals is to demonstrate what I think the right type of investment is to tackle that problem. But I think we need more of that type of investment. And hopefully I can convince people that that's the case as, as we progress uh, to get to that. But I think that's a, a longer road. I think that um, the other promising thing it, uh, where these two paths come together is that as uh, a lot the AI continues to be impactful and transformative, it's engaging y- humans more and more. Um, so it means what that means is that you are using, you know, you have your phone, your computer, you have all these different ways in which you're interacting with applications today that engage uh, you, uh, engage humans in various forms of interactions. I think that's essential for the vision that if you ultimately want machines to understand, you're going to need a deep levels of engagement from humans. And I think that's happening. That's transforming. That's happening. We're seeing that. So you have huge opportunity to engage them. The chicken and the egg problem is that you kind of have to, you have to engage them well enough that they want to have the back and forth with you. <laughs>
0: if, or, I'm thinking of i v r systems and immediately pressing the zero button <laughs>
1: exactly or you know giving up on on your favorite chat bot you know um right. for anything 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 that's actually complicated or involved, and you you just kind of give up um you know, or let me talk to a human right away and you keep hitting the pound sign until you get a human whatever it is mm-hmm. I mean, I think that you know. Um, so there's a little bit of a chicken and egg where they have to be good enough to engage you so they can learn from you, and so that's kind of like where well, you need that initial investment. So I'm so I'm I'm optimistic that we're not going to suffer an AI winter. I worry a little bit if people go out there and expect these things to be extraordinary, at least from the understanding side right away. Uh, we have to kind of have a little bit of, a little bit of a, uh, a a cooperation, a collaboration. and You have to inspire that.
0: So it sounds like you. You know, while you're respectful of deep learning and what it offers, you don't think it's the entire solution. How do you articulate what you think that solution looks like?
1: So it's that's also an interesting uh question because um I think the answer is a little bit more nuanced and the um my 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 philosophy about that is a little bit more nuanced. Um so I, I, I'm sort of um with regard to the power of deep learning as a general approach uh, to to intelligence, I'm a little bit, I'm probably leaned toward, you know, agnostic, maybe positive, a little bit past agnostic as a believer that maybe it's enough to achieve general intelligence in some theoretical way.
0: Meaning there exists a neural network of some arbitrary depth and breadth that can get us to AGI? Yes, Given some unspecified data and training method, given some S
1: unspecified features, you know feature set, right? And, yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. So, so probably right. Exactly. You, you got it. You got it. Um, and and just to put a uh, fine point on that, you know, the brain is generating features. It's generating an enormous amount of internal features, particularly when it comes to socioeconomic stuff, emotional stuff, things that relate a lot to how we understand and build internal models that we could then apply language to. It's generating a lot of its own stuff. It's not external data in some effect it's internal data. You can argue that with exposure to enough of exactly the same stimulus that, you know, some specified you know, yet to be specified neural net would generate a lot of those internal features. I don't know, not necessarily. Um, and that's the interesting thing about, about the technology is not necessarily – it may built a completely different conceptualization uh, of the world around it in order to survive or do similar things that would be completely incompatible with yours. So um, – but anyway, like I said, I mean, sure, maybe, right? Um, and that, now the other approach is if I said my goal was to take all this content, all these symbols uh, that is our language – and map it to representations that represent our understanding of that language, which is now something that uh, more directly models the full internal representation that we may have, or something that's isomorphic to it—not not necessarily the way we represented it in our brain, but um, represented in a way that we would end up with the same language for it. And I had enough of that data, and I trained a neural, and I, and I, you know, I trained a, a deep learning system. Would it be able to now read and produce an understanding of a, a, a of a blind you know language? Maybe, maybe, but you need a a hell of a lot of that kind of data, and we don't generate that kind of da- that type of data readily. Mm-hmm. We can't even agree often mm-hmm. on what what that common understanding of that thing is. As I said, this goes back to the back and forth, right? We we sort of assemble and refine and align that understanding through our interaction and collaborations. Mm-hmm. So, it's sort of an, so that's an interesting question. So where I end up with is um, we need a hybrid system and that hybrid system puts some stakes in the ground. It says... This is what I think an understanding is. And I demonstrate that that understanding is ambitious, but nonetheless – it's ambitious, but um, good and um, not so ambitious that it becomes impossible. You know, for example, you can read read a text and you can go on and on about all the depth of understanding and the layers and layers of meaning and the metaphorical implications and so forth and so on. Or you can get that text and you could say – I know I know all the agents. I know what they did. I know when they did it. I know their relative, um, you know, uh, geospatial relationships, and I I know how it lays out in time. And I can tell you what all the individual motivations were and their incentives were to take the actions they took. And I can tell you what events caused what other events. That would be impressive. I would be very happy with that. If that was my you know fifth grader, I would say good job. Mm-hmm. That's an impressive level of understanding. If I can give, give you an arbitrary text and you can do that, but that's that's also that's that's impress. It's not everything, but it's it's damn impressive. So now to do that, what would I need to do? And I, you know, the system would need to dialogue effectively. It would need to systematically be able to acquire knowledge. It would need to do the full NLP stack um, and then some uh, that we're also familiar with. Um, It would need to be able to, if it's going to converse with you at all, it can't be completely absent of any um, background knowledge at all. So it needs to do kind of corpus analysis and um, knowledge graph building. Uh, It needs to be able to build an internal representation that it can then reason over so it can make logical predictions and entailments. Um, so you could imagine as I'm going through all this stuff, the system that we're building at EC has dialogue components, has um, deductive and inductive reasoning uh, mechanisms. It does um, uses deep learning to do corpus analysis and knowledge graph building, It uses deep learning to do um, basic NLP. Um, and of course, it has an architecture through which all these components are integrated. It's been It's enormously challenging. Uh, We have a ways to go, but those are the ingredients uh, that we're playing with in this
0: system. How do you characterize kind of where you are with it relative to, well, relative (laughs) relative to benchmarks that we need to define? (laughs) The ones like you you just outlined with regard to understanding.
1: Well, that's that's exactly right. I mean, I think that, look, we're about six months to a year away from, um, I think, defining a good, the way I like the phrase I use is a, a good ambitious challenge problem. So in other words, one that has a, um, a data set, a clear metric, as I said, a very ambitious metric, uh, but nonetheless, um, a clear metric and and an evaluation process that just sets the bar a lot higher than what we're seeing today. It's not limited by what um deep learning stuff can do today. It, it sort of takes that barrier and says, hey, let's forget about what's possible, what isn't possible today. What do we think on what we should be able to do uh would be a good uh definition of this understanding problem that is ambitious enough and challenging enough, but not impossible, or at least our perspective is not impossible. Um and also to and also um to demonstrate um an approach that that is viable. Mm-hmm against that challenge problem. And I'm super excited about that, because I think this is what AI needs. I mean, if we really want to tackle understanding, we need that.
0: And when you think about this definition of understanding and the the challenge problem, to what extent does it incorporate elements that get at nuance, like I'm thinking of things like Winograd schema challenge and things like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the Winograd schema challenge is I- interesting, and we should be able to um, to tackle that uh, that type of stuff. So I think it absolutely has to get at at, at the nuance that you suggest there, and um, and it, again, because it is built, it is building an internal representation, it will get confused. It should know it's confused. It should be able to say, "I don't understand this." Um, I can't fit this into my prior models of how the world works, and here's how you can help me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, that's how it should behave.
0: And so so you, you characterize this as a hybrid system, and I'm envisioning hybrid not just being a connection of, of two different things, but lots of different things. And it strikes me that a big part of how you glue all this stuff together is – kind of formalizing the the formal knowledge piece and representation, you know, to what extent is that an important element of the overall functioning of a system like this?
1: Yeah, so the formal representation is an important part. And, you know, so you could imagine, I mean, it's not, I, I don't think it's hard to imagine if you thought at all about, you know, architecting these kinds of systems. You know, you have to, you know, language comes in, you have to be able to parse it you have to be able to do an initial syntactic and semantic uh at least shallow semantic interpretation you're going to get all kinds of possibilities so you're going to get you know different parses you're going to get different word senses um you know you're, you're going to you're going to get different uh semantic interpretations at different levels and you have to start to make sense of it and so when it gets to the making sense part um you have to uh, be able to reason about it. So, there, so you know, there's a formal representation uh, that ultimately we map to. Uh, there are multiple reason engine, reasoning engines that pour over this and start to evaluate different interpretations for the level of sense that they make. Um, it's as smart as its prior knowledge, so there's a Bayesian aspect to this as well, as it uses prior knowledge to actually try to determine confidence in what is the right interpretation and how do I move forward. Um, it has to be open-ended as more information uh, lands, lands and gets acquired. It has to be able to kind of go back and say, okay, which direction do I go to continue to make sense, make sense out of this. Um, it, has to, it has to know what it's doing so that it could dialogue and ask questions and ask for help about its interpretations and it has to do that in a way that isn't um, incredibly stupid, because otherwise humans aren't going to engage in it. So it has to do everything it possibly can do uh, in extracting um, background knowledge from large corpora, even if it doesn't completely understand the large corpora yet, because it doesn't have the foundations to do that. It at least has to be able to use that to prune its search and shape its interaction with humans so it doesn't gets so stupid that nobody wants to talk to it so these are all enormous challenges that bring in sort of every aspect of 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 AI uh, of AI save you know robotics type stuff uh, you know hardware type stuff but in terms of um uh, uh, knowledge representation reasoning uh, natural language processing uh you know learning deep learning reinforcement learning like dialogue management like you name it
0: yeah, you certainly make a, a good argument for uh, the level of difficulty of the problem. Uh, the other part of the argument you're making is the type of investment and, you know, need to invest in, in solving it. What? How do you characterize that for folks?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, you know, the team—so, first of all, it's interesting because um, I'm, you know, EC, while we're doing or approaching a hard research problem— you know, we're not strictly an academic research institution. We we are engineering a system and we're continually refining it, building it and evaluating it. So we have a mix of engineers and researchers. And you can imagine that there's there's um, quite a bit of diversity. So you have people who specialize in, in, in machine learning and in, in deep learning folks, folks, we have NLP folks, dialogue folks, we have knowledge representation, we have reasoning folks. Um, uh, we have linguists, so you know, and 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 having a a underlying architecture uh, that is laid out well enough that these individuals can work together. Um, you know, and I I did this on even though this is an two orders of magnitude more complicated than the Watson architecture, um, the basic approach toward managing a, a team is like this is is very similar. Mm -hmm. Uh, and and how to, you know, conduct and assemble that team is very similar. So diverse set of interests, very committed to the mission, uh, you know, is incredible, is incredibly important. And at the same time, coming at it from very different perspectives, because they all see themselves as contributing to a larger, more complex architecture that isn't just an, an architecture in, in theory It's 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 an engineered system, and sort of you know where to plug in and how to contribute and sort of you know move the ball forward. So um, anyway, these are how how I think about managing this type of project. In terms of the scale of the investment, um, also good question. Always thinking about that myself. uh, I'm always careful to invest incrementally. So um, as I see as I see the pieces coming together and you know, you start with a few people, you grow out, um, as you see pieces coming together, you look for where the bottlenecks are, you look where for the opportunities are and where the bottlenecks are, and you grow accordingly. And so I tend to do that very carefully and pick the right people to fit into the right places as, as, as we go. And so we've been doing that. Um, we're up to about 24 people now. Or, um, and uh, is that enough? No, I think that ultimately investment requires more than that. And will probably continue to grow, but as I said, we'll grow incrementally as as we as it's clear that that's where where we're going to get the the you know the the incremental value.
0: Earlier, you mentioned that there's plenty of low hanging fruit in deep learning. What's the the argument for investing in clearly a difficult problem relative to picking off some of that low hanging fruit?
1: It's tough. It's a tough call, and, and I think, <laughs> you know. It, it's difficult, and, and it, it's difficult in terms of. I mean, I, I'm, I'm lucky, um, you know, that I have the investor that I have, who's interested in, in, in the bigger picture and the longer term role that AI has to play, and how and how, it, how, it, how the human machine interaction gets shaped over time, mm-hmm. um, and also um, has an appetite for a, a longer, you know, lo- longer term uh, type investment and a, a sort of bigger bang for the buck. Um, in terms of the impact. So that's good. Harder to find than the 18-month uh, or 24-month lower-hanging fruit stuff. Um, so um, that's harder to find, but I, I, I've got that. Um, but it also hits you in the recruiting side because you get a lot of people who are like, you know, I want the quick win. And and there are, qu- uh, like, quite a number of exciting applications I think you could approach with, with uh, just, you know, uh, straight applications of deep learning. And they're cool and they're fun. -hmm. So you end up really um, looking and finding people who are just really want they want that machine that fluently talks to them. They want that they want that you know that Star Trek computer that uh, becomes their you know thought partner. And um, you know, just some people really have that dream, and they understand that um, that that this is this is one of the best shots for getting there.
0: Maybe to to kind of start to wrap things up. Can you talk a little bit about how you deliver something like that in phases Uh, or, or is it, you know, definitionally kind of a big bang thing? Like we just get there because we have to have all these pieces just right in order to uh, execute that ultimate vision.
1: Yeah. So another, I, I, another really good question. And, and um And we, we, we work, we, you know, we struggle through that question. I mean, I think that there are phases and I think there are both phases from a business perspective, from an investment perspective, and there are also phases from a more of a scientific or research perspective. Uh, And we do spend time thinking about Uh, You know, incremental applications that we can build with the technology that we're creating. It's part of the investment. It's not the main thrust right now. The main thrust is really staging the, the scientific work. And as I mentioned, you know, defining the problem really well, making sure that we can scientifically evaluate progress against it. Uh, we continually um, actually apply um, deep learning uh, systems and see how they fail and do the error analysis. We continually apply our evolving system, look at where it's failing, and continue to try to improve it. And we, we create incremental milestones for ourselves. And that's important because um, to manage the project, you 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 can't have this thing that's like five years away you have to create those uh, incremental milestones and even creating those themselves are a challenge, particularly in the very beginning stages. Uh, we're getting to a point where, where we, can, we can create those intermediate scientific milestones, uh, I think more regularly and more effectively because we have enough of the architecture built out that we can do that, we can run this on content, we can do the error analysis, uh, we can identify where the problems are, we can start to iterate on making the system smarter. So we're getting, we're at that point now, which is great. Um, but that's a very important thing. And learning how to evolve those milestones um, well is important. on the on the kind of incremental application side, that's also kind of um, getting some attention for us, and we're thinking about ways that we can use the 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 even though we don't have uh, that deep general understanding yet, we've built a lot of impressive kind of NLP um, and and representation and reasoning stuff that we think can help out. In a number of different areas, and we're playing with that. Uh, we don't we don't have to spin off the because of the, our investment structure. We don't have to spin off those applications, but we want to keep ourselves honest and make sure that we can demonstrate to ourselves and our investors that t- this technology will have impact uh, and that it can and it could do that incrementally. So that certainly is a part of what we we think about and do. But it's a good. It, it's it's good. It's, you're, you're asking like you're. You're asking key questions to figuring out how to, how to manage a business like this. You're absolutely right.
0: Well, Dave, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me about what you're working on. It sounds like really interesting stuff. You bet. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Take care. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com.